response that God has given you, Jacob. Appreciate you sharing those with us. And I'd like to thank all those who participated in the service so far. We have an amazing church family. Um, if you are not a member of our church and are interested in being a member of our church, love to talk to you about that. It's a great family to be a part of. So if you're a guest today, I hope you feel welcome. And if you're a regularly attending member, I hope you feel welcome too. I hope you are connecting here at the Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church. Early in my ministry, I had the chance to take groups of people to other countries where we would build a church or we would build maybe some classrooms for a Seventh-day Adventist school. And it was amazing how young people would respond to these opportunities when we'd talk to, to people about the potential of going and doing a mission trip in another country. We would go to school, I worked at a school at the time, and we would say to the young people that, okay, this is how it's going to work. You're going to be working all day long, probably laying block or mixing cement. It's going to be hard work. It's going to be hot, probably. It'll take up your whole spring break. It's going to cost a lot of money, and you're not going to get paid for it. If you're interested, please let us know. And somehow, there was never a shortage of young people who wanted to go really showed me the, the desire to serve that's in the heart of our young people. It's very inspiring. I found that young people are an essential part of mission trips like this. They have enthusiasm, they have innovative ideas, and they have energy. I remember one year at our work site in the afternoon, it was, it was especially hot on this particular mission trip. We're building, it's the afternoon, lunch has already happened, and the older people who were on the work site, I would include myself in that group, we were not really feeling like continuing on working. We're slowing down. And there was a group of high school girls who would just catch their second wind at the hottest part of the day after they'd worked all day. And they would just go out there and work really, really hard and inspired all of us to say, okay, we can do this. It's amazing the way they led by example. As important as young people are to, these, are to the, the success of these mission trips, there's another group of people that are just as important to the success of these mission trips. These people have graying hair. Some of them have no hair at all. They don't have energy to spare, but they have wisdom. They have experience, and they have a lot of patience. For the trip to be a success, these seasoned individuals and this group of young, these groups of young people, they needed to turn to each other and team up and work together. Even though most of the young people on these, on these trips had completely no experience. They were completely inexperienced in building. I've seen classrooms. I've seen churches built during, a t during spring break incredible progress that took place. And it all happened because students, young people, and people with experience, older people, came together and they worked together. As a result, there were buildings where people could worship God, classrooms where students could learn about Jesus because different ages worked together. When people of different generations 
come together for a common purpose, the results can be absolutely amazing. Amazing. Far greater than what we would expect. And not only can this can intergenerational groups achieve amazing things, but it's a wonderful experience when people of different generations can come together and work together. As wonderful as this idea is of the young and the old coming together, working together happily in agreement, as, as wonderful as that is, getting people of different ages to work together, it's tough. It's tough to do. People my age and older can think, we know what's best, and I think I'm right. <laughs> After all, we have life experience. We've seen what works and what doesn't. So it's only natural to think that the young people should do things my way. Then our young people, they have better ways of doing things in their opinion. Their thinking has not been molded by how things have always been done. They're innovative. They, they, have, they have an openness to new ideas. They see how things could be improved. So it's only natural for them to want to change and innovate in church, which may make older people like myself uncomfortable. It's not the way I would do it. Despite the huge advantages of young and old coming together, it's, it's not hard to see why our church struggles to be a family where young and old are together, committed to a common purpose. It's a, it's a struggle to be united. Of course, these struggles are not new. Parents and children have had difficulty relating to each other for generations. It's not a new thing. But thankfully, God has a way to unite the different generations that are in our church family. God has a way to unite our nuclear families. Today, as we continue our series called Make Us One, this is our heart's cry, we're going to look at an Old Testament teaching that shows how God is at work to remove the barriers that exist between different generations that, that keep generations separated from each other. And how young and seasoned individuals can be united as a family, as one in Christ. The title of the message today is Unifying Truth. And before we get into the text, I'd like to pause for prayer. Heavenly Father, this is hard. Unity is not something that comes naturally. So I pray that you'd give me and you'd give each of my church family here, each of our guests, give us an openness to your teaching, to the changes that you want to bring in our lives so that we can enter into this experience of family in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like you to turn with me to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. If uh, you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's page 960. We'd love to have you all join us there. Malachi chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 5 and 6. So Malachi was an Old Testament prophet, obviously. Um, he's in the Old Testament. And he gave a message of relational healing. You see this emphasis in the four chapters of the book of Malachi, this, this message of relational healing. Now Malachi lived after the Babylonian captivity where, where 
um, Israel was taken captive. They, they were captives in the, nation, in, in the land of Babylon for 70 years. And then the nation of Medo-Persia came and overthrew Babylon. And, and the Jews were allowed to return to their home in Jerusalem. And after they returned, they rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed by Babylon. They reinstated the worship services that were there. And they learned an important lesson. Prior to the Babylonian captivity, they had worshipped idols, and they saw how the, that idol worship results in oppression. And that's still true today. Like, whenever we worship anyone else but God, there, there's an oppressive thing that takes place. In our, we are oppressed. And for them, it, it resulted in the oppression of foreign nations. And so they learned from this, and, and they were careful not to make the same mistake again. We're not going to worship idols. We'll worship God. So they went to church. They prayed. They learned the laws of Moses. And they were very religious by all appearances. But just because someone is religious by appearance does not mean that their heart is devoted to God. We can be religious and be very unlike God. And this was evident in the people's day of, of Malachi. In, in Malachi's day, rather. This was evident in the people's lives in how they treated one another. Malachi was called to rebuke these apparently religious people because they were not loving each other. They went to church. They did all these religious things, but they didn't love. They, they were lacking love. Husbands were mistreating their wives, and he called them to love. Employers were underpaying their employees, and the vulnerable in society were going uncared for. Looking to the future, when God would come to judge the earth, the great day of God, the prophet Malachi answers this question, who will be able to stand when God appears, that great judgment day? Who will be able to stand? To prepare the people for Jesus, and in, in today, to prepare us for Jesus' return, to live with him forever, and to live with each other forever. A special truth would have to be given to restore people's relationships with God and to restore relationships with one another. Malachi tells us about this special truth of relational restoration. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, please uh, follow with me here. Verse 5 he says, see, this is, this is God speaking, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now, the event Malachi is talking about has scary implications when he talks about the great and dreadful day of the Lord, he's talking about the second coming of Jesus at the end of the world. The day when Jesus comes back to take his people, which is wonderful, take his people to heaven. But it's also a day when all life on earth comes to an end. So those who are not ready, those who do not want to be in heaven with Jesus, those who would not be happy in heaven, their life comes to an end on this day. Since this event has eternal consequences for every one of us, nothing that we do is more important than preparing to be ready for this day. Now, I would just step back and argue that 
God does not try to scare us into loving him. That's not God's MO. It doesn't work. God's not trying to scare us here when he talks about the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Be ready. He's not trying to scare us. But neither is he trying to, be, to, to leave us ignorant of the consequences of our choices. He wants for us to be ready because there's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. He wants to save us from eternal death, from a broken relationship with God that results in eternal death. And so to save us from that, God promises to send us Elijah. Now to understand what Malachi is talking about, what God is talking about here in Malachi, when he says, the prophet Elijah is going to come to you, I'd like for us to just kind of roll up our sleeves a little bit, if you don't mind. We're just going to get into this a little bit. I'd like to just hang in there for a little Bible study with me. Is that okay? Are you all right with that? Okay. So Elijah was a prophet, and the primary work of the prophet is to give messages from God to the people. Now, sometimes this is a message about the future. Sometimes it's a current day message. It doesn't have to be foretelling the future, but the primary work of the prophet is to give messages from God. And the message of Elijah to the people when he, in, in the time that he lived, several hundred years before Malachi, it was a simple message. Israel had broken their relationship with God because they were worshiping God and they were worshiping idols. It's like they were, they were supplementing their religion. Like God wasn't enough. They needed to have some idols too. So they began to, to worship idols. And as a result, they had broken their relationship with God. Why? Because God is calling a calling for a total commitment from his people. He's not content with 99%, like a marriage. It doesn't work if it's 99%. He's calling for a complete and total commitment. And the people had not made that commitment. They worshiped God, but they also had their own idols on the side. They'd broken their relationship with God. So to call the people back from idol worship, to call the people back to God, Elijah asks this famous question, and you can keep your finger there in Malachi. I'm just going to put this one up on the screen. He asks this famous question to the people. How long will you waver? Some versions say, how long will you hesitate? Literally what it means is, how long will you trip? Will you stumble over having two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. But make up your mind. Don't stand in the middle of the road here on this. It's either one or the other. To settle the issue, Elijah built an altar to the Lord. This was on the top of Mount Carmel, and all the people were around, all the prophets of Baal were around, and those who couldn't fit up on the mountain could see what was happening down below in the valley. They're looking up. And Elijah quietly rebuilds the altar to the Lord, offers a sacrifice, and prays a simple prayer. In response to Elijah's prayer, fire comes down and consumes the altar, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the dirt and the water that had been poured previously over that sacrifice. Everything was burnt up. When this happened, the people experienced God turning their hearts back to him. This was Elijah's prayer. Let them know, God, that you are the one who turns our hearts back to you. When people saw the fire come down from heaven, they sensed something happening in their life. They realized that there is one true God. There are not many gods. There is one true God, and that is the Lord God of heaven. 
And God in that moment was turning their hearts back to him. And they affirmed this. They agreed with this. And they cried out that the Lord, he is God. Elijah's message called attention to God's law. God's law says, have no other gods before me. Elijah's message was calling attention to the commandments of God, restoring the relationship that had been broken with God, not trying to limit him by by even making an idol of what they thought God would be like. He says, don't do that. Don't make idols. Don't, Don't have any other gods before me. Respect my name, who I stand for. Honor me as the creator. Honor me as the one that provides everything and rest. Elijah was calling their attention to God's law. And as the people accepted this message, God was able to heal the relationship that had been broken. And their hearts were turned to God. Well, Malachi in his prophecy, in Malachi chapter 4, he prophesied that Elijah would appear again. He says, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So because of this prophecy, you can only imagine the excitement and the enthusiasm that was building as 400 years after Malachi wrote this prophecy, a man shows up in the Judean wilderness with a garment of camel's hair, just like Elijah, and a leather belt around his waist, just like Elijah used to wear. And he was preaching a message of returning to God, just like Elijah preached. People were getting excited, and and they asked this man, logical question, are you Elijah? Made sense. The people knew that Elijah had been taken to heaven in a chariot of fire hundreds of years earlier, and so it was easy for them to assume that Elijah would literally come back to this earth. Was this the prophet Elijah come back from heaven? He looks so much like what we heard Elijah dressed like. He's saying the things that Elijah used to say. But John the Baptist replied to their question, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm here to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. But in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, That's what Elijah was doing. (laughs) I'm sorry, John the Baptist. Baptizing people, calling them to a full commitment, submerging, a full submersion, representative of a full commitment to God. And that's why we still do that today. But this is what Jesus had to say about John the Baptist. He said that John is the Elijah who was to come. John was saying, I'm not literally Elijah. But Jesus says, John is the Elijah who was to come. Jesus is not disagreeing with John. Jesus is not saying that, oh, John didn't know who he really was. John the Baptist was John the Baptist. But Jesus says that he was the Elijah to come because John came preaching the message of Elijah. The message was the same. He was calling people to the law of God, calling people to turn their hearts back to him. The law represents principles of God's character. It's what protects our relationship with him. It's what protects our relationship with others. That's why it matters. And John the Baptist came. He was an Elijah figure. But he was not the only Elijah figure that was to come. If you look closely at Malachi's prophecy, we can see that there's going to be another. The focus of Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 is the giving of the Elijah message before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. John the Baptist did not live at that time. 
He lived before Jesus' first coming. But Malachi foretells that Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The Bible indicates today that we are living at the end of time. We're in the time of the end right now. Here's a few evidences. I mean, there are many signs that the Bible talks about that would indicate that we're living in the time of the end that have already been fulfilled. The moon turning red as blood. The day turning dark. Sun being completely obscured. Day turning dark. That's happened. Stars falling. Incredible um, meteor showers taking place. We see other signs like famine, disease. Hello, COVID-19. We see, we see all of these things. Natural disasters, conflict. They are more and more frequent, and they're happening with greater intensity. The signs are pointing to that. The time prophecies of the Bible, if you're a student of prophecy, you know Daniel 8, 14, the 2300-day or 2300-year prophecy has been fulfilled. The 70 weeks, according to Daniel chapter 9, has already been fulfilled. These things have been fulfilled. We're living at the end of time. There are no other time prophecies that need to be fulfilled. Malachi was talking about today when when he wrote these words in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, that's today. That's the time that we're living in now. The next big event on God's agenda is to appear, appear in the sky and to take his people home, to end evil here on earth. But before we can be ready to go to heaven and live together forever, we need to be able to live together now. <laughs> What's heaven going to be? I mean, we need to be unified now. We're going to be ready to live together forever. When I talk to people younger and older than me, I'm reminded of how different our perspectives are. It's almost like we, have, we come from different cultures, like the differences in generations. It's almost like we come from different countries sometimes. We speak different languages. A few years ago, there was a student protest on one of our Seventh-day Adventist college campuses. And this protest was sparked in part by the administration not allowing a speaker to come and talk on campus because this speaker did not hold Christian views. Now, at the time, I happened to be working with a recent graduate from this particular school. And so I asked him, I was like, why are the students protesting? I mean, this seems like a no-brainer. The person that they are talking about does not hold Christian views. Why would they want someone who doesn't hold Christian views to come on a Christian campus and talk about their beliefs? That doesn't make any sense. This is a Seventh-day Adventist school. Why would they let a non-Christian promote their views? From my perspective, it, it, it just didn't seem to make any sense. And I could just imagine the administration getting phone calls from wealthy, older donors notifying the school that they were going to be removing their financial support if this speaker came and spoke on campus. We get that, right? But my young adult colleague had a completely different take on it. He said that the students are not protesting because they believe in non-Christian views, because they have non-Christian beliefs. They're protesting because they don't want to deny anyone the right to be heard. That's why they're protesting. They don't agree with it. I, he's like, I know those people who are protesting. They don't agree with this person. But they want to protect academic freedom. They're fighting for academic freedom. 
The students wanted academic freedom. The leadership wanted to protect the Seventh-day Adventist beliefs. Both had valid concerns. And I'm not here to settle the issue. I'm here to point out that generations have very different perspectives. Very different perspectives. And as we look at those who don't believe the way we do, it can be very uncomfortable. As I'm sure this whole thing was uncomfortable for many people involved. Of course, this example is just one example of the divergent views that exist between different generations in our church. So with such divergent views, how will young and old ever come together? How will we ever really be one, unified? Well, Malachi chapter 4, verse 6 tells us. God says, this message of Elijah will turn, let me put it up there, will turn the hearts of the parents, this is the older generation, the parents, to their children, the younger generation. And the hearts of the children to their parents. There is a message of truth that is going to unify young and old. It will happen. And notice that this message is not a message of mere tolerance. God is not saying that parents, older generation, really you should be nice to the younger generation. It's not saying that the younger generation, you really should be nice and tolerate the older generation. It's more than just being nice to each other. It's talking about a heart change. It goes beyond just behavior and saying, oh, I should listen, and I should say, I respectfully disagree. It's more than that. It's a heart change that takes place. This message causes generations with very different perspectives to turn toward each other on a heart level. And here's how it happens, because it calls attention to the truth of Jesus. It's the same message of Elijah. It's the same message as John the Baptist. It's lifting up the character of God in the law of God as exemplified by God in the life of Jesus. The gospel tells us that Jesus was constantly drawing crowds of all ages. Children were attracted to Jesus. Young people like his disciples, were attracted to Jesus. Parents and grandparents were attracted to Jesus. And around Jesus, there was unity. All generations were there. This is what Jesus does. Jesus brings generations together. You see it all through, just read the Gospels and notice it. He brings generations together. Now, some people try to find unity through compromising truth. I'd like to make a point here. They'll say, well, let's just find the beliefs that we have in common. Let's just focus on those. Those beliefs that we don't have in common, we'll just kind of hold those privately. Maybe let those go even. Maybe they're not even relevant. They'll try to find unity through compromise. But let me ask you this. Did Elijah ever compromise truth? Did John the Baptist compromise truth? You brood of vipers, <laughs> flee from the coming wrath. Bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. That doesn't sound like compromise. <laughs> These guys, did, did Jesus ever compromise truth? These individuals would never have had a message had they compromised truth. God does not bring about unity through compromising truth. He calls us to unity by submitting to truth. It's a heart submission. 
submitting to the truth of Jesus. I would like to make this statement. I believe that God has raised the Seventh-day Adventist Church to give the Elijah message today before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The Elijah message that will call the hearts of the older generation to the younger generation and the hearts of the younger generation to the older generation. That will bring about unity in a time that we're living in where there's so much separation, so much, so much brokenness in relationships. God has a message that brings people together. Not because we know how to really work hard at unity, not because we have really super strong willpower, but it's because there's a message of God. God is the one that turns the hearts back. He is the one that brings unity. Many say, well, before I get there, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just say this. Jesus lived a perfect life. Would you, would you agree to that? And we know that he lived a perfect life because we have the Ten Commandment law that tells us he lived a perfect life. He perfectly kept the law of God. The laws that relate to his relationship with his father, the laws that related to his relationship with one another. Jesus perfectly kept the Ten Commandment law. He depended upon God perfectly to keep that law. He didn't do it on his own. He says, of myself I can do nothing. You can read about it in John 5, 19. Of myself I, I can do nothing. He depended on his father to keep the law. It wasn't on his own willpower. And as followers of Jesus today, how can we say that we really follow Jesus and throw out his law? As followers of Jesus today, how can we say that we follow Jesus and keep nine commandments out of ten? I'm not saying that as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, I'm better than any other denomination, but I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a really important contribution to the experience of those who want to know Jesus today. How can we fully follow Jesus and not fully embrace the law that he lived? The Seventh-day Adventist Church has been given special insight on the commandments of God. Some people might say, oh, the commandments have been done away with. Most people will be honest and say, really, it's been nine out of ten that have been done away with. I mean, who disagrees that we should tell the truth? Who disagrees that, that we should honor the, re, the, the possessions of other people and not take them? But it's the fourth commandment that has been somehow neglected. The fourth commandment that calls us to keep the seventh-day Sabbath holy. And the way we keep it holy, this is so significant to our experience. The way we keep it holy is by doing no work. All right, catch this. People say the law should not be kept. Why? Because we can't keep it, right? But God's not telling us to keep the law on our own. The fourth commandment is what brings it all together. He calls us not to work. He calls us to rest. Can you rest? Can you not do something? I can do a lot of bad things, right, on my own. God calls me to rest in what he has done. He calls me to trust in him for him to turn my heart 
Do you hear it? Just like Elijah, just like John, for me to turn, he's going to turn my heart back to him if I agree with him and I rest in him, if I trust in Jesus. He will change my heart and restore the broken relationship that sin has brought in my life, that I have chosen to bring into my life. He can come and he can fix what I have destroyed. And the way that all happens is by me trusting him. The Sabbath commandment is a call to not work, but to trust in what God can do. And everything that he does is perfect. That's why we can rest. We don't have to add anything to it. He's not deficient in any way. If he were, then we'd have to add something to it. Oh, God, you missed something there. I need to help you out. God doesn't need my help. He needs us to rest. And when we rest in him, he turns our hearts to him. And when our hearts are turned to him, we are united. If we are going to live the truth as we find it in Jesus' life and share it with others, if we are going to give the Elijah message, as I believe Malachi foretold, as we are going, if we're going to prepare ourselves and, and prepare the world, prepare others for Jesus' return, then every generation in our church family matters. Those with experience, you are so needed. Those who have lived a long life, you are so needed. Please don't get the idea that when we talk about growing young or we talk about, you know, blessing our youth, that now the older generation is no longer needed. You should now go away somewhere and have your own program. That is not the case. We need to come together. It's the wisdom of the older generation that is needed, the direction of the older generation that's needed. It's the mistakes that have been made by the older generation, and if you're okay with it, I'm including myself in that. That is needed. We need to pass on what we've learned. We need to pass on what we know about Jesus. Pass on encouragement and faith and hope to those who are coming with us that are younger. Younger generation, we need you. We need your innovation. We need your energy. We need your enthusiasm. We need your openness to change. Each person is needed. And some might look up here and say, oh, what are you talking about, Pastor Brian? There's a little hand up there. Are babies needed in this? Try this on. When a child, a baby, gets upset about something, and you know they get upset, right? When they get upset about something, how long do they stay upset about it? Have you ever seen a child get really, really upset, and then a moment later they're all happy and they're playing with something? That's the way children are. Do you think older people could learn something from that? Can you imagine how much better our marriages would be if that's the way we dealt with being upset? Ah, oh yes, I love you. (laughs) How would conflict in church build if that was our response to being upset? Ah, yeah, I can't even remember what that was. Hey, so let's go, let's go on a hike this afternoon, right? All generations are needed. And God calls us to a message of unifying truth, his law, as it is exemplified in the life of Christ. He calls us to submit to that so that he can turn our hearts back to him and we can experience unity. Regardless of your age, you matter in the work of God. So I'd like for you to consider who God is turning your heart towards. Who are the people that God is turning you towards? And I'll give you a hint. It's probably not the people that you hang out with a whole lot. These are people that think differently than you. These are people that you may have a hard time finding shared experiences with. 
But if we're all looking to Jesus, he is our shared goal, our shared experience. Who is God turning your heart toward that belongs to another generation? Maybe it's a young person in this church. Maybe it's an older person in this church that you've seen and maybe heard, and you're like, man, that seems like a really cool person, but I've never had, never taken the time to just go and say hi. And maybe, maybe we can do something together. I don't know. Who is God calling you? Who is God turning your heart towards? He says he's going to do it. The hearts of the parents are going to be turned towards the children. The hearts of the children are going to be turned towards the parents. Who is God turning your heart towards? And as you turn towards these people, as you work together, and as you see the differences that are there, and you're just like, whoa, I, I don't know how I can stomach this. How in the world could anyone see this that way? As you see these differences, as you, see, as you feel the discomfort there, then I want to invite you, I want to challenge you to bring those concerns to Jesus. Unity is Jesus's work. Unity is Jesus's problem. Let's bring those concerns to Jesus. Let's let him show us how to relate to different generations, and let's let him unify our church. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, oh God, forgive me, forgive us for placing such a high estimation on our own personal comfort that we would not be willing to follow your lead in being unified with those who think differently than us. God, I want to thank you for the unity that takes place here in the Medford Seventh-day Adventist Church. I pray that you would protect those relationships that currently exist between different generations. Those relationships in our, in our nuclear families, those relationships in our church family. I thank you for those. I praise you for those. And we've been blessed as a result of them. But I want to pray, God, for a greater experience with your message here. That we would look to Jesus. Now, in whatever way that we are experiencing disconnect from those who are part of the family of God, may we allow Jesus to turn our hearts to one another, to turn our hearts to you. I pray, God, for restoration for broken relationships. I pray that we would be willing to agree with your work and that you would turn our hearts together in unity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.